Good morning. I'm going to be beginning a new series called Rebuild that we'll be doing this month. And the passage that we're going to be re- uh, reading from today is from Luke 22:31-34. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. In this passage, we see that Satan has asked to sift us, to stomp us, and Jesus has asked to keep us. So who gets what they want? The answer is both. We may fall in this life, but our faith will not fail. If it is truly saving faith in Christ, our faith will not fail because Jesus Christ is praying for you. He will uphold you. And your part is to believe in him, to trust him, to repent, to get up, to use the armor that God has provided, and to rebuild. The last couple years have been very chaotic and unsettling, and this year looks to be more of the same. There are plenty of things that have happened to make us feel anxious and fearful and depressed. There's been a lot of relational conflict. And in this series, we will show that even amidst our failing to live up to the standards that we have, we shouldn't give up. We shouldn't stop trusting God. Because God is still working in us. All is not lost. God is intending to bless and rebuild our lives. And these are promises that we receive from him, and we receive them in faith, trusting God and obeying him. God is not going to allow his kingdom or his people to be destroyed. And in this series, we will show how God helps us in each of these areas, rebuild our lives after a season like this. Now, in one of the most spectacular failures of all time, Simon Peter's denial of Christ, Jesus shows the purpose God has for our failures. We see that in this passage. Often we have, been, uh, we have the best intentions, but we don't measure up to them. Here are Peter's intentions that he declared the night that he failed to live up to them. He said, Peter, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. That's what Peter said to Jesus. I'm going to go all the way with you. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, this prediction came true, of course. We see the whole story as you continue to read in the Gospels. This is the middle of the story. And why did Peter fail? Why did he fall? The answer is just because he, like us, he has a fickle heart. We all have fickle hearts when it comes to the Lord. Hearts that vacillate between trusting God and not trusting God. Peter failed because of his pride, because of his confidence in the circumstances. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. As long as I'm with you, I can do anything. You raise the dead. You can feed thousands with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. You can walk on water. With you, I can do anything. But what if Jesus wasn't with him? What if Jesus was arrested? What if Jesus was beaten, crucified, and buried? Then what would Peter do? See, Peter's confidence was in his own will, his own willpower, his own desire, and the way that he was reading his circumstances. He was sure that things were going to be as they always had been. And the circumstances changed. His world was shaken. And then his, his faith failed. In a way... He turned away. He renounced Christ. He, he denied he knew Christ three times. But not really. God was holding on to Peter, just like Jesus prayed for him. And Jesus said, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. And Peter did return. You see, Satan has a purpose in all of this sifting going on in our lives. His plan is to destroy our faith, to get us to stop trusting God. But the Lord also has a purpose, and his purpose is to renovate our hearts, to renovate us from the inside out. Now, I have a picture of some buildings that are being renovated. And when you renovate a building, you are making that building more useful, more fit for your purposes. 
And that's what God is doing in our lives. He created us to be his image bearers. But our, our sin in our lives has really marred and defamed the image of God in us. So God is renovating us from the inside out. He's transforming us in our hearts and he uses the pressure and the trial and even the failure to show us where we really are at and what we really need, which is him. And then he helps us rebuild. That's what God wants to do. God is weaving our failures into a story that he's writing in our lives. We see that in this story with Peter. It's a story of his grace and his mercy. The more we fail and the more we fall, the more we see how good and faithful God is to us. And he loves us. He's never going to let us go. He's never going to forsake us. He's going to keep helping us, keep forgiving us as we repent and as we confess our sin, as we get back up and in faith, trust and obey him. That's what we're seeing in this story. Now, we also see in the story that Satan demanded to have Peter. We're not just alone. Our enemy is trying to destroy us. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. Now, that word you in the passage is plural. It's not just Peter that Satan is demanding to sift like wheat, but it's all the disciples, all the 11 disciples who were there with Jesus in the upper room, which is where this is taking place. Satan is saying, I want all these. I want to stomp them. I'm going to show you that these, these men are not truly faithful to you. And this, uh, this stomping, this, this sifting process, sifting wheat, it's not a term that we're familiar with, but sifting wheat is a pretty violent process. Here's a video of a woman who's sifting wheat on her farm. You see, she's beating the wheat so she can separate the chaff from the wheat. The chaff is the worthless part. It's the shell, the, external, uh, the exterior of the, of the wheat. And she's, she's breaking it up so that it can, uh, so she can get rid of the parts that are worthless and keep the part that's valuable. And that's what God is doing in the middle of the sifting for us. He's separating the things that we're hoping in and trusting in. He's, he's revealing idols. He's revealing uh, lies that we believe, sinful patterns, so he can break those things free from us so that our faith can remain so that we can grow strong and mature. That's what God is doing in the sifting. And what you see is, like Peter and like the disciples, we're all sifted. We are all sifted like wheat. Satan wants permission to stomp on us, just like he wanted permission to stomp on Peter and the disciples. And God gives it to him. God allows this sifting process. He allows Satan to do this. And he is going to allow God to do, God is going to allow this to happen, not just to you and to me, but also to our kids, to our grandkids. They're going to be sifted as well. And Satan's purpose in this is to condemn us. And his purpose in in this is to get us to stop trusting God, to get mad and turn our back on God and give up our faith. And he's also trying to get God to condemn and punish us and turn his back on us, which God will not do. This is what Satan is trying to do. This is what Satan always does. He is a accuser and a condemner of God's people. We see this all through the Bible. He says, look at these people. They're not faithful to you. Look at how they sin. Look at how they disobey. Look at all the good that you've done for them. And they continually betray you. They're unfaithful to you. Why aren't you pouring out your judgment on them? Why aren't you punishing them? You're not a just God. A just God would punish these wicked people. That's what Satan says. He says it to us. He says it to God, trying to break our relationship with God. And we see this throughout the scriptures. For example, in Zechariah, which is a a prophet in the Old Testament, we see a, a picture of the heavenly throne room. Now, in the time of Israel, there was a high priest, and he represented all the people of Israel before God. He would go into the throne 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 room of God and provide offerings and prayers to the people once a year. And in this uh, revelation from Zechariah, we see Satan is there accusing and condemning. But it's interesting how God responds to Satan's accusations. In Zechariah 3, it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. 
The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this branch plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel. This is the high priest representing the people of Israel. He's standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments, which represent all the sin and all the failing of the people of Israel. Just like Peter, just like us. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. God removes our sin, he takes it away, and he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. God is for us. When Satan is accusing us, God is defending us. Jesus is praying for us. And so, knowing that we're all going to be sifted, that, that is going to come, seasons of sifting are going to come, where Satan is going to stop on us, what do we do? One of the first action steps you can take is to ask yourself, where am I being sifted? Where am I being tempted? Where am I sinning? Where am I disappointed? Where am I frustrated? Where am I being tempted to not trust God? Where are things really, really hard right now? What's all in a snarl in my life? And you identify where you're being sifted. And then you pray for mercy. And you ask God for faith to stand, for faith to trust and obey him, to do what you know you ought to do without fear of the consequences. And you ask God to give you endurance so that you can keep trusting him, keep obeying him. There's a very encouraging part of this passage as well that I'd like to point out, which is that Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for me. He was praying for Peter and the disciples. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Your faith will not fail because the Lord Jesus is praying for you personally. The Bible says that Jesus lives forever to make intercession for his people, that he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he is praying for you. He's praying for me. You could put your name in this passage. Matt, Matt, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Matt, that your faith may not fail. God is ready to give us all the resources we need to stand and to to withstand the, the sifting process, to be faithful to him, if we'll ask him. Jesus is praying for us. He's not against us. He's for us. He's praying for us. But the thing is, is we have to recognize that we are in a spiritual battle, that our enemy Satan is trying to destroy our faith. This is the picture that God gives us of the reality that we live in. We don't have to fall and fail. We can stand and succeed and build and rebuild if we use the weaponry and the armor that God gives us. If we avail ourselves of the resources that God has provided, we don't have to just keep going through this cycle of failing and getting up and confessing and failing and getting up and confessing. God will give us the power to transform, to to overcome. And so in one of the clearest passages about the spiritual battle we're in and the weaponry that we have, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. And I'd like to read this passage and then focus on two pieces of armor. In this passage, Paul explains to us that our enemy Satan and his, his army is really against us and how we can fight. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. You can stand if you put on the armor and use it. So then he lays out what the armor is. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up your shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We have to use the whole armor of God. And if we do, we'll be able to stand in the middle of the sifting. We'll be able to build what God wants us to build and rebuild that which has been torn down. We can do it. 
if we use the armor. You have to use all the armor. But I'd like to focus on just two parts of the armor today. If you would like to know more about how to use the armor of God, I'd love to help you. You can ask myself or Pastor Randy or Pastor Thad. I'd love to help you know how to use the armor that God has provided. But I want to focus on two pieces of armor. The first is the breastplate of righteousness. You see this in Ephesians 6.14. It says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is really the righteousness of Christ. Now, this is a picture of a breastplate in Roman times. This is what Paul had in mind. A breastplate is used to protect your vital organs. Because if you get hit in your vital organs, you're done. You're dead. You're out of the fight. And Satan is trying to go for your heart. He's trying to discourage you. He's trying to get you to give in to pride. He's trying to get you to trust in anything other than Christ. He's trying to destroy your faith. And so you have to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And the way you do that is by saying, you know what? I am guilty of sin. I have done wrong. And yes, I do deserve punishment. But God has poured that out on Jesus. 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died, he died for me and my sins and for all of his people. The punishment that I deserve, it was poured out on Christ and it is done. It's over. It's finished. And the righteousness of Christ, all of his obedience, all of his perfection has been given to me. And all the blessings and all the good promises and the rewards that a person who perfectly obeys God deserves, Jesus Christ, the only one who's ever done that, he has given those to me to receive from God in faith over my life. And so I don't stand in my own righteousness. I don't, I don't try to justify myself. I don't punish myself. But I confess my sin, I repent of it, and I begin to rebuild in faith. This is the breastplate of righteousness that protects our hearts from excessive pride or excessive discouragement. And these are the two extremes. You can become extremely discouraged by your sin. You feel guilty and ashamed because you keep falling and failing like Peter. But if you try to punish yourself, you're actually getting into a trap. You can't punish yourself because you haven't sinned against yourself. You've sinned against God. And God has punished the Lord Jesus. He's punished your Lord instead of you. And that punishment is over. There's no more punishment for God's people. There's only love and help. There's discipline like a father gives to his sons. But it's always for our good. It's not for our bad. God loves us. He's for us. We're in his family. Because of what Jesus has done. And so you want to avoid punishing yourself. This is one extreme. This is what um, Judas Iscariot did. It says that Judas Iscariot felt guilty for what he betrayed Jesus, that he went to the high priest and he said, I betrayed innocent blood and he wanted to give the money back. And they're like, look, it's over. It's done. So he threw the money down in the temple and he went and he hanged himself. He killed himself because of his excessive guilt. Sometimes we can be like the character Dobby in the movie Harry Potter. Maybe you're familiar with Harry Potter. My sons and I, we've been watching Harry Potter lately, and there's this character named Dobby. He's a house elf, and he punishes himself because he's such a horrible, bad servant. He's always punishing himself because he has such guilt and shame. He doesn't know what to do with it. But as Christians, we put our guilt and shame on Christ. We confess it, and we let it go because God has promised to forgive us. He says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And the reason why it's just for God to forgive us our sins is because the punishment we deserve has been poured out on Christ. So don't punish yourself. And on the other extreme, don't justify yourself. Don't make excuses. Don't change the standards by which you evaluate your life. Make God's word the standard that you are living to. Don't try to justify yourself by saying, well, you wouldn't have done this and I would have done that. If you do that, you're being like a Pharisee. Pharisees justified themselves. But you don't have to do that. Because you've been justified by Jesus. This is the breastplate of righteousness. And if you believe this, then you know you believe this because in faith you confess your sins. You say, God, I've fallen. I've failed. I've messed it up again. Would you help me? I confess it. I I need your help. I know what you want me to do. Would you give me the power to do it right now? I'm letting go of my sin. I'm putting it upon the cross of Christ. I receive your forgiveness. And I ask God now that you strengthen me and help me to rebuild. That's how you use the breastplate of righteousness. I first did this when I was a younger man. My life had been just a mess. 
one failing after another. I was all in bondage to, to drugs and alcohol. I was a violent man, a liar, a thief. And when I finally um, just blew my life apart, God brought me to the point where I could see all of the depravity in my life, how powerless I was over sin. And I cried out to God and I asked him to save me. I told him, I, I, I give you everything. I'll do anything. Just save me. Rebuild my life. And he did. God gave me his spirit. He adopted me into his family. He assured me that my future was going to be good because he was going to take care of me. And then he began to break the bondage in my life. He did it. I didn't do it. He did it. He strengthened my faith. He gave me faith and made it strong. He took away addictions. And the addictions that he didn't take away, he gave me the power to overcome. And then he showed me other things in my life. People that I had wronged. People that I had stolen from. And began to make restitution. Sending people money that I had taken. And letters of repentance. And going to people that I had slandered. And asking them to forgive me. And Talked to my mom and dad and asked them to forgive me for dishonoring them. And then God brought more things to my mind and more things to my attention. And over time, God began to rebuild my life. And that's what we're saying. That even when you fall, God is going to use that as a part of his grand story to show his grace and his mercy and his ability to take someone like me and someone like you and rebuild us into something unshakable, something eternal. This is still going on today in my life. I haven't gotten past this. I still fall and fail, and I still have to trust in the breastplate of righteousness, that, that Christ has truly forgiven me, that I can let my sins go and keep moving. <clears throat> this last week, we had something in our family called Snowmageddon. We decided to go up to the snow and play in the snow, but I didn't plan. I was super stressed out, making it a horrible experience for my family all the way up there. It took us three and a half hours because of the traffic was so bad. When we finally got up to the snow, we couldn't play because it was already 3.30, and by the time we played, it would be dark. It would be black ice on the road. It wouldn't be safe to drive. So we got back in our car with all of our snow stuff on, and we drove back home. And that took us two and a half hours. It was six hours in the car, and I just had the worst attitude. I was angry and impatient and frustrated, and I was ruining it for my family. And I just afterwards felt so bad. It was a horrible example. I didn't plan ahead. It was just, it was, it was just an example of my total failure. <laughs> and then the next day, we decided to go again. But again, I didn't really plan well, and so I was all stressed, and I was driving recklessly, and I hit the curb, and I popped my tire. So now we're all dressed up, ready to go to the snow again, and the first thing I do is pop the tire. So I pull into this tire place, thinking they can fix it quickly, and they say, well, we don't have your tire. We're not going to be able to fix it until like 12 o'clock. So I had to go back to the car and tell my family, I'm really sorry, but I messed it up, and now we don't get to go to the snow. So we had to walk home in all of our snow gear. I'm just humiliated and ashamed. I feel just horrible. Like, look what I've done twice in a row. And my, my youngest son is crying. What a horrible dad. <laughs> and then I'm looking for my keys that same day, and I'm really frustrated. I can't find them, and my son's trying to help me. And then I, I bark at him. I get mad, and I speak harshly to him. Failed again. And then I, <laughs> I was really inconsiderate towards my wife. I said I would do something that I didn't do. And then, uh, you know, it really hurt her. And so I'm a horrible husband, I'm a horrible father, I'm a horrible example, I'm just, I'm failing everywhere. What do you do? All I could do is confess it. I told my family, look, I, I've just been a bad example. I was frustrated and angry, I didn't plan well, and it's my fault. Would you please forgive me? I told my wife to forgive me for being inconsiderate. I asked my son to forgive me for being harsh to him. And I have to trust that those sins have truly been washed away. That the punishment that I feel like I should put on myself... With a justification like I feel I should do, I don't need to do that because it is gone. It's finished, and I can move forward. And because my family are Christians, they forgave me, and they've let it go. I've let it go. God's let it go. And now I'm going to be going to snow again, maybe tomorrow. And I can assure you that I'm going to be praying for patience, and I'm going to allow God to work in me 
and I'm going to be a better example to my kids, and God is going to strengthen me in an area that was very, very weak, which is patience. And I'm going to grow a little bit, and it's going to rebuild me. It's going to help my family. And this is how the breastplate works. So use the breastplate of righteousness. Don't justify yourself. Don't punish yourself. Don't try to be good enough, but trust God. You see how this frees you to be honest? You see how you can be real? Look, if you've had, if you, if you realize that there are problems, like I'm a father. Let's say that I realize that I haven't been parenting my kids well. That there's something going on in my family that I have not addressed, and I realize it. Now I can feel horrible about that. I can say, man, it's been years. I mean, I'm a horrible dad. Or I can grab my kids and bring them around and say, listen kids, <clears throat> God has brought something to my attention that I need to change. And I want to confess to you that I haven't been leading you as a father well. But now, I want to start I want to start leading our family and doing things God's way. Would you please forgive me for my sin against you, not being the leader that I should be, not being the father that I should be. And now, I want to ask you to join me and trust me and obey me as we move our family in a direction that's pleasing to God. Now, when you do that, you may feel like, yeah, but I'm just, I'm such a, I'm such a wreck. No, forget that. Let it go. It's, it's on the cross of Christ. Trust in the righteousness of Christ. If you sin against your spouse, you confess it. If you sin against your brother or your boss or someone in the church, you confess it. You just admit it. And you let God forgive you. Let them forgive you. And you ask God for grace to change. And he will rebuild you. This is how it works. Then you use the second piece of armor. And that is the shield of faith. And the shield of faith is like the shields that the Romans use. Here's a picture of a Roman shield. You can see that it covers the entire body. That shield is able to protect you from flaming darts. The enemy is shooting at you. Darts of discouragement, darts of condemnation, darts of temptation. He's constantly attacking, attacking, attacking. But if you hold up the shield of faith, you can withstand them. You can block them. And how do you do that? The way you do that is by saying, God will not rip me off. Satan, you are tempting me to get angry, to sin, to guilt, to lust, to pride, to contempt, to, to grumbling, to whatever. You're, you're tempting me now to stop trusting God and not obeying God, and I'm not going to do it because my God is not going to rip me off. I'm going to trust God and obey him, and I know he's going to help me, and he's going to bless me. The, the future that I have, if I obey God, is going to be good. I can trust God, and I'm going to obey God. I'm not going to listen to you. And so you hold up the shield, and you trust in God for your righteousness, and then you swing the sword. You use the word of God. God has said that I need, as a husband, to lay down my life for my family. God has said, as a Christian, that I need to say no to you know, lust and anger and contempt and malice. God has said this, and I'm going to do it. And when Satan attacks you, well, you've never done that before. You're going to fail. I hold up the shield of faith and say, no, God is going to give me what I need. And as you do that, as you, as you hold up the shield and as your breastplate is protecting your heart and as you swing the sword of the truth of God's word, as you do that, in the middle of the sifting, you can stand. And you get stronger. This is what God wants to do. He wants to make you stronger. And that's what we see. If you look... At the passage, you realize that, that God actually has a whole bunch of purposes that he wants to do through the, the, the sifting. Uh, there are purposes for God in our sifting. Whether we stand or fall, he has purposes. And there are two big ones. The first one is God wants to strengthen your faith. Like I've been saying, when you recognize your sin, when you recognize the mistakes you've been made, that you've been making, and you're not afraid to confess it and admit it and agree with God because you're not trusting in your righteousness. You're not afraid of punishment, but you're just you're so grateful that God has shown you the truth and you're ready to change and you're ready to receive the grace that he's going to give you to change in this area. Right. You have a hope for the future because, you know, your good father is going to take care of you. It strengthens you. It's through the trial that you get stronger. You know, when you put weights on a rack and you do push ups, the more weight you put on, the stronger you get. Of course, it's like that in every area of life. And so 
When Satan asks to sift us, God says yes, but God uses that sifting to strengthen our faith. And that's why Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And that's what God is going to do. The second thing God does, the second purpose he has for us in our failure, is he wants us to strengthen our brothers. When When we have fallen, gotten back up, when we've confessed and left our sins in the past, when we've received the grace of God and we're beginning to rebuild, and God begins to give us success and victory and things start to get better, we can testify to others that you can trust God. He's going to help you. We can strengthen our brothers. And that's what Jesus told Peter. He said, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. God knew Peter was going to fall, and he knew Peter was going to turn. He was going to repent. He was going to, the word is actually convert. He was going to turn around and begin to trust and obey God. And when he did, he was going to have the ability to encourage his brothers that are undergoing the same kind of suffering, the same kind of trial, the same kind of sifting. And all through Peter's ministry, that's what he was doing, encouraging the church, building up the church. And he could say, look, I've been where you are. I've done what you've done. I've, I've fallen and failed like you have. But I can promise you that God will help you rebuild if you will trust him and obey. So confess your sins, lead in the past, put on your breastplate, get up your shield, and start walking in victory. You can strengthen people. The man who's been through it is the man who can help. If you have a a history of addiction and God has broken you free from that, you can go to people who are addicted and you can testify. You can look them in the eyes and say, you can trust God, he's going to help you. If you had problems in your marriage and God has fixed you and he's helped you and he's restored your marriage, you can help those who are struggling in their marriage. If you had trouble with your kids and you begin to trust God's promises and parent according to his word and you've seen fruit grow, you can testify to parents who are in the same place. Thing is, though, in order for you to be strengthened, by someone else who has gone through what you're going through. You have to be open and honest. You have to be honest about your struggles, about your afflictions, about your needs. You have to do this because the encouragement that you need and the strengthening that you need, the comfort and help that you need, God has given that to your brothers and to your sisters in Christ. He's given it to the Peters so that they can give it to you. But they can't give it to you if you're not open, if you're not real. We can't help you with what you conceal. We can only help you with what you reveal. That's true for you and that's true for me. So you have to be open and honest with your life. And in a community like Church in the Valley, in a church where people are trusting in Jesus Christ, where everybody recognizes that we're pieces of work that are, that are all being rebuilt by God, we all recognize we have no righteousness of our own, we can be honest with one another. We can say, look, this is, this is really not going well. This is the area of my life that is just a mess. And I don't know what to do. And God will use your brothers and sisters to strengthen you. And the flip side of that, the flip side of that is that there is value in your suffering, in your sifting. When you're the Peter and you've fallen and God has lifted you back up and your faith has not failed and he's taught you and made you stronger and he's rebuilding you, that suffering that you've gone through, well, that's a precious gift that you can give other people. You get to share that with your brothers and sisters in Christ. God is going to use you and your weakness to build up other people. So even in your failings, there's purpose. So our third action step is to be open and honest so that God can strengthen you and strengthen others. If we learn to cooperate with what God is doing in the middle of the sifting, well, he gets the glory and we get the blessing. We get to rebuild something that lasts. We get to rebuild a life that is indestructible, an eternal life. We get to build marriages and families and we get to build churches and communities that have an eternal quality to them, built on the rock of God's word, protected and blessed by God, and they last. And that's what God wants to do. God is shaking this world 
The last two years has been just a gigantic shaking. He's shaking this world so that everything that's not built upon the rock of his word falls. And those things that cannot be shaken remain. His kingdom. He's showing us what's really true and what's really valuable. and What's really solid that we can hope in. And it's him and his word. And so in the middle of the sifting, know that God is working. And that you can stand with the resources and help he provides. And then you can encourage others even when you fall. So the next step for you today is to take one of these three action steps that I've outlined in your program. Or, if you have not done this yet, I want to encourage you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't justify yourself. Don't bear your sins on your own. But accept the forgiveness that God has offered in Christ. Make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. Give him the crown in your life and allow him to rebuild you. We see in the scriptures that Peter would go on to lead the church, that he would preach powerfully on the day of Pentecost, that thousands would put their faith in Christ. The first 11 chapters of the book of Acts is all about Peter's ministry and how he's building and encouraging the church, how he's standing up against persecution. No matter what they do, no matter whether they throw him in prison or threaten to kill him, he will not stop trusting in Christ and telling people about Christ because he's seen the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy, the power of God in his failings. The scripture says that Peter died in Rome, that he was crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to be crucified like the Lord Jesus. To the end, he was faithful. His faith did not fail because the Lord Jesus was praying for him and did not let his faith fail. And God will not let your faith fail, even in the midst of the sifting that you are going through. You can trust him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in the middle of the sifting, you make us stronger. That although we fall, we will not fail because you are holding us and giving us the faith that we need to keep trusting and obeying you. Father, we pray that you would equip us with your armor, that you give us hope for the future. Lord, that you would take away pride that makes us justify ourselves or discouragement that makes us condemn ourselves. And rather, help us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to trust in the righteousness of Christ. And for that to give us confidence that you love us, that you like us, that you're going to help us, that you're for us. And that there's nothing in this world that can separate us from you. And so we can move forward into the future with confidence that as we try to rebuild our lives with your help, you will give us what we need. We know you'll do this because you sacrificed your son, your one and only son, as a demonstration of your great love and commitment to us. So help us to respond to you in faith, trusting you and obeying you in faith. Help us to do it. Show us in our lives areas where we are being sifted. Help us to be honest, to look with, with a sober eye at areas that were falling and failing, and not to hide them, but to confess them to you, to confess them to others so that you can help us and strengthen us. Please do that for us this year in Jesus' name. Amen.